0: alrighty if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5 I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Blessed and holy and good is the reading of God's holy Word. Father, I pray more than anything That Your presence rests strongly upon our souls this morning. That we would be touched to the depths of our hearts with Your eternal glory. And so to that end, help me. Help me unpack and speak the admonition of this text. Help us hear. Help us be moved. We would see Your glory, Father, in it. I pray. Amen. There's a foundational... I want to use the word assumption, but I I I am, but I mean it that way because it's explicit too in the New Testament. And so there's this underlying assumption throughout the New Testament and clearly in the Apostle Paul's mind that God saves sinners supernaturally something happens in the soul while we're walking our lives down here that plucks us out of darkness and calls us into His marvelous light and then He leaves us here in this present evil world but we who have had that experience of new birth saving faith in Christ we are no longer of the world we're in it but not of it we are utterly foreigners or aliens in the world that for instance is why the Apostle Peter in his first epistle to, to all the churches in five huge provinces, he writes this way. That's how he begins the letter. To those who are chosen, exiles. You've been exiled from your homeland. You're not home. We're in a foreign place. And so he goes on, Peter does in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, and he says to all Christians beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles here in this world I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war Against your soul. Keep your conduct among unbelievers in this world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may say, I mean, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of Jesus' second coming, hopefully. That's the assumption. And so the Apostle Paul now in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he's writing to people who who have come to faith in Jesus in the midst of a Greco-Roman culture here in Asia Minor that was blatantly steeped in all kinds of biblically unlawful sexual Activity, And this is why he says in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 2016, 17, God bless you. We probably have a new president right now or something too. Gosh. And it's America, which I live in and I know best. And clarity on the issue of sexual immorality is desperately needed in the quote-unquote evangelical American church today. In the first century, the Gospel it just plucked people out of a culture that just was riveted with sexual sinning and put them into a subculture called the church. In stark contrast to what they lived and knew today it's flipping around much of the culture is infiltrating the church rather than the other way around i mean just over the last number of years here in the south bay i hear disturbing stories like uh, where i hear the story a few years ago where a guy was a professing Christian in his public high school, and he was a leader of, an, of a Christian, I think it was an, uh, a Christian athletes group in high school. And you've got to hear me carefully. It's not only that he was having sex with his girlfriend. That's, okay. The issue was, he seemed, the way I get the story, had no reservations or inhibition about letting others, another Christian even, know that. Not in a sense of help me, but just a matter of fact. And I hear stories in in youth groups in the South Bay over the years that that's kind of many raised up. It's not just that they give in to sexual temptation, but they have no problem in the context of a youth group sharing it with other youth group members. That that's what I'm going to continue to do. A few years back, I had a conversation with a young man in his 20s, who, and it was, this is very good, wanted to open up and share that he had been constantly involved in having a sexual relationship with someone he wasn't married to. And as I listened, when he was done, I was like, okay, you, you have any questions for me? I'm, no, what's it? He wasn't begging me to get out of it. And so what really shocked me is that, okay, I, I, without questions, i got some things to say. You must... As a professing Christian who was in the evangelical church for at least three years by that time, you must stop this right now. And I went to the Bible and showed him how his soul is in peril. What shocked me was that he was shocked that I, a pastor, would tell him to do that. He was stunned, and I was stunned. See, there seems to be an epidemic in many, many young people today who walk around with an assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. But feel that since she and I or he and I are in love, well, sexual play and petting and sexual intercourse, for us, not that big of a deal because we love each other. This is the kingdom of darkness invading the visible evangelical church. The Apostle Paul would be absolutely livid and bewildered if he just popped up into our day of the state of the church, in my opinion. And that's why he says in our text, But sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, church, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those of us who are older, we we have seen a massive change in the sexual revolution that has happened over the last six decades. And it does more and more make me now, as a guy in his 50s, think about my own kids and anybody under the age of 25, maybe even the age of 30, the the world that's so different that they're being raised up in than I was. Dr. Al Muller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, He addresses this radical sea change in his book, which is titled, We Cannot Be Silent. And the subtitle of the book, I just hear it. Here's the subtitle Speaking Truth to a Culture Redefining Sex, Marriage, and the Very Meaning of Right and Wrong. In the book, Mueller writes, What we are now experiencing is not the logical outworking of Christian influence on the teaching of human sexuality, but what we are experiencing is the repudiation of Christian teaching on human sexuality. And I think Mueller nails it when he goes on to say, the sexual revolution was so utterly successful that most Americans living today don't recognize that it happened. And that's why this morning I'm just going to focus on verse 3. Now the whole section, is, as you would continue to read down, the whole section is about the difference between the light and the darkness between believers and unbelievers between those who have been born again and have thus come into the light and those who remain in spiritual darkness if you just jump down for a moment in this section, look at verses 11-12, Paul will come to this saying they have got to get this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret." He's referring to sex. And so this section starting with verse 3 this is how he's beginning it. it's a warning to each and every church member to have nothing to do with sexual immorality in its various impurities or expressions meaning sexual relations with other Persons outside of the covenant of marriage between a male and a female, a man and a woman. The first word he uses here that's translated sexual immorality is the word porneia. In other words, what does he mean? He means participating in sexual relations with other persons that God forbids. Okay, got it here. That's why it's immoral. If there is no God, there is no immorality in any avenue of life, much less the sexual one. It is sexual immorality. Because participating in that is what God forbids. And that's why it's immoral. Now sometimes this word porneia, when it is used along with the other more specific word that only deals with married persons called adultery, then it's usually focused on non-married persons having sexual activity with other persons. And they're not married, and they translate it, fornication because adultery is clear which is married people having sexual relations with persons to whom they're not married. porneia here the word sexual morality. it's the first word and when Paul gives these lists of the works of the flesh for instance in Galatians 519 he writes the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality. It's porneia. Sexual immorality, number one. Impurity, sensuality. When he's writing to the Colossians in chapter 3, he says to them, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he gives a list. Number one. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion, evil desire. So that's the first term. Sexual immorality. Then, notice the second one. Translated in the ESV. Impurity, all or various kinds of impurity. This is the word that, that was often used of just unrestrained sexual behavior. Another way to translate it would be uncleanness, I think the King James does it that way. And you think, well, what's that? What well, we did, I don't know how it's spoken about today, but when I was younger, you know, they would call particular magazines. We didn't have the internet. Thank goodness. But they call them dirty magazines. Okay? Okay. It's the same, it's, it's, a, it's a sexual word that's talking about a way of acting out your sexual nature that is against God's way and it's an, it's an impurity is what He is referring to here. It just highlights the, the essence of those who find natural desires coming up and they said, just caution to the wind and follow it and act it out. And, and he just wants to, with anything you can think of where that might lead you, all kinds of impurity. So he writes, but sexual immorality, first word, and all impurity, and then or it's like it's to together. Or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, yeah. when you read that, even... It, 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 and and I'm, I'm reading other scholars and doing the same thing and disagreeing on it. Because I've got to say, okay, what does he mean here? That's the question. What does he mean by covetousness here? Did he just kind of change the subject... In other words, does he mean by covetousness here the normal uh, command against covetousness? One of the Ten Commandments, in which list covet your, which would bring in the sexual, right, in adultery, etc. Uh, but, but covetousness, just the yearning and deep, Desire What you give me, God, is not enough. And what others have, I need that just in general. Or in the context, does it refer to a sexual covetousness or greediness to possess and to use another's body? Yeah, in the context, that's what I think. The second one, Paul most likely is referring to. The sexual greed and insatiability. But the NIV and the New American Standard translated, greed—just more, can't be satisfied. And not only that, because these same two words—the the, the second word and the third word, impurity and covetousness—Paul already used together before in chapter four. Verse 19, where he was clearly talking about sexual sins when he said they're greedy, there's the word covetousness, they're greedy to practice impurity. Literally, all kinds of, of sinning sexually that you can think of. So, in other words, what we have in verse 3, Paul's flow is... When it comes to sexual immorality, that's the issue—immoral sexual activity with other persons. The next two terms, he is restating it. He's unfolding that. Just any way I can say that we all do that. To be clear, you be redundant. Sexual impurity—all, I mean, sexual immorality—all impurities, greediness, just. This is what so many of the readers were raised up in. When you, I mean, it's just we, we're going there, <laughs> but we—I don't think we have temple prostitution yet, too. So that's what he's driving. Sexual sin is so serious that Paul then says, "Don't even." Let this be named among you. This is proper among Jesus' people. That's Paul's way of saying, within God's community of Christians, a culture concerning human sexuality should be utterly different than the one he just Listed in the first part of verse 3. And about those who don't pay attention, take it lightly. I love Jesus, but... Not that part. Paul says concerning sexual immorality in all purity or covetousness just look down it again start with verse 5 this is what he says about that for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure it's just a play on all three of these words that he uses now now he just says you're the person that's how you're living your life impure or who is covetous that is They are just saying, by God, I will be my own God and worship my desires and act them out. Who is covetous, that is an idolater. That person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And he's not done yet. And I just want to say, to to young people today, high schools and college campuses and sadly more and more from churches, churches, or just the culture of it, or the fear of even speaking about it, Paul says to you, as he said to them back then, let no one deceive you. Don't listen to their words. Don't listen to their theology. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words because it is because of these things sexual immorality in its various forms it's because of that that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience there's our text now you've got to ask yourself the question Is God just a kill joy? Are the prohibitions against unmarried sex just because God finds joy in you not finding happiness or thrills in the activity? of sex with persons to whom you're not married the answer he's not a killjoy and that's why we got a good twenty five minutes to go because it's not enough and I'm going to tell you this is one of the biggest problems in American evangelical youth and what they teach excuse me what they do not teach them That is the Gospel. That is the glory of God. That is why they're made or created and why they exist. That is why does human sexuality exist. They don't know. All they know is, I guess I'm not supposed to do that. I'm raised in a Christian family. Until they come into puberty and start to challenge. And listen to the world and strange voices that Paul says don't listen to. The reason for the prohibition against acting out your natural... There's no guilt in being a sexual being as a pubescent and post... Well, you don't get post... There is no sin that's normal. Sin is taking it and expressing that in the relation sexually with another person or persons. And God's prohibition against it is not because He wants to ruin a good time. It is because God is glorious. And because the Gospel of God's glory is the centerpiece of the universe. And that's why sexual sin is so horrific. What? That's where, I'm, that's where I'm going. So why is it then that sexual immorality is such a huge issue at the heart of biblical Christianity and the Christian life? I mean, how is that I love my boyfriend. I love my girlfriend. How is that connected to God's glory? So let's go to the Bible. Pray that we can see the connection between God's glory and our human sexuality and thus immoral sexual activity. Start the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In verses 26 and 27 we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, he created them. God did that. And the more the core of Judeo Christian morality and ethics is being attacked in the culture, you see it, right? We're in a nutty age. You have people that hate Christianity and a large segment of our culture even wanting to enact in law. When you're born, what we used to know for thousands of years, you ask, is it a male or a female? Not anymore. Because science doesn't matter to them. What matters to them is how a person feels. Truth is gone. And it's a direct attack On the God of the Bible. He created sex. I mean that in two ways. He created one humanity consisting of a distinction between half of them here and half of them here. He created two sexes. Male and female. And, not only that, He created sex. He created the ability, the desire, and the capability to have sexual relations between a man and a woman. And then, stay there, in verse 28, He goes on and He says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, And this is before sin, before the fall. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God tells him, go ahead and have sexual relations. Often. Do it. Create babies. That's God's command. But He's not done. Then God goes on from creating humanity that way. You're either a male or you are a female human. And then, he reveals why. Oh, those are big questions, aren't they? Purpose. Why? And in what context this sexual play, intimacy, is to be experienced and enjoyed. Chapter 2, Genesis Start with verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man she shall be called the Hebrew words there it's not the word Adam for man there she shall be she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his girlfriend no to his wife and they, the two, shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The only place in God's design where this Intimate pleasure is to be expressed between persons is in the parameter of the covenant of marriage between a male and a female, a man and a woman. And so, turn over to the New Testament now. Christ... The fulfillment and everything pointed to up to that time has come. And what does the New Testament say now to the church? Let me start with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The word of the Lord. Let marriage be held in honor among everybody and let the marriage bed be undefiled why? because God will judge the fornicator and the adulteress Marriage bed, it's a euphemism for the sexual relationship between the husband and the wife. He says, hold marriage and sex in marriage in honor. Not just you married people. Uh Uh-uh. Among all of you, Because you single people, God will judge you. If you dishonor marriage and sex in marriage, this is why you you need to hold it. Honor means hold it as valuable. Hold it as a jewel, as precious in your singleness, in in your being married, in widowhood. Honor marriage means you married people. You divorced people. You widowed people. You single people. You teenage people. You same-sex attracted people. Honor marriage and marital sex. Because God will judge the sexually immoral and those married persons who commit adultery. And so I think to be more fully committed then, to get this, to say, yes! It's not merely a denial, but the positive is I want to see the glory of God in it, so that I can honor what is marriage, what is human sex, it is to understand the purpose for why God created the universe. That's the key. The purpose to walk with Him against temptation is to know why, God, did you create anything? Why did you create Me. So I'm going to go there as quickly as I can in a nutshell and see if we can feel the flow. The entire universe is created by God for the glory of God. Meaning, the Eternal One without beginning who has existence and being in His very self who always was brought into being all that was not Him, and thus is derivative and utterly dependent upon Him. And He did it, not willy-nilly, not just because He got bored one day, He did it for a purpose, a goal, that His creation would reflect back to Him His eternal glory. And thus He creates, as the pinnacle of that creation, humanity made in His image in order that the human being and thus from Him human beings would radiate would reflect His glory and as we saw already in Genesis 2 He says okay the way I want my glory reflected is not good that man just be alone that is the male and so He Fashioned for him out of the man, the female made him a woman. Why? To help reflect the glory of God. And then Adam, before he ever sinned, recognized, this is it. This is good. All those animals, that didn't, that didn't work. This works. A human person who, forget about the physical, she's different. She's a woman. She's feminine. I'm masculine. It. Right there in verse 24, chapter 2, Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold on to his wife and they shall become one flesh and it's amazing that that one flesh relationship is not just physical it's soulish she's not a male she's a female and that's different than the male equal but different. And vice versa. She's feminine. He's masculine. And then there is the physical. I guess it's a coincidence that the male genitalia complements the female physicality. Genitalia. Now. Okay, now you're there. Okay, great. Reflect the glory of God. Okay, I'm not getting it yet. But now we're going to get it. Because all of this, it is glorious. Why? Because God created the beauty of the sexual activity within a covenant of marriage for a goal. A goal that He had before He ever created the universe. And that is that that union which should be held in honor, is a parable. It is there to reflect, to placard the union, the fidelity, the faithfulness, and the beauty of His Son, Jesus Christ, the husband, to His bride, the wife. And so as we jump down, we'll come back here in a month or two when we get there. But right now, jump down, chapter 5 of Ephesians, and listen very carefully. As Paul says, marriage, human sexuality, is a metaphor for the Gospel. For the faithfulness of Christ. Start with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church on that wedding day to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Okay, husbands, now, in in the same way, you are to love your wives as you love your own bodies, just as Jesus or Christ loves the church. Because we are members of His body. And then then Paul quotes what we have seen. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul makes one of the most stunning statements next that is found in the Bible. And if he is an Apostle of God, if Paul's teaching is faithful as Jesus' personal Apostle, it is the Word of God. And here's his stunning statement. This mystery of creation of man and woman in the marriage It's profound, and I, Paul, am saying that really, Genesis 2.24 refers to Christ and the church. The reason there is human sexuality, the reason there is the covenant of human marriage, is because Christ was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God created the world in order to redeem for Himself a people. So that the eternal second person in true humanity would be the husband and would have a bride that He redeemed, that He washed, that He cleansed. And therefore, God ordained human sexuality and the covenant of marriage as a metaphor for it. To placard it. And therefore it dishonors the glory of God when we dishonor marriage by participating in sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. This is Christianity. From a biblical worldview, the topic of sex makes sense only in the context of marriage. Sex outside of the marital covenant is an insult to God's design. It is the human heart saying, okay, say, <clears throat> to the Creator. To the Creator. Okay, we're all sinners. And at the core of our being as sinners, in particular when we come into the experience, then in, in puberty and on to our sexual natures. The sinful nature in me and in you, the temptation of what it wants to do is live out those desires that right now in this myopic view I have instead of everything into place I'm so tempted right now just follow your desires and commit adultery commit fornication commit a homosexual act that's the essence of our sinful nature it demands if it feels good do it And Satan is a master screenwriter and director. He's an angel of light. He knows how to make those things that spit into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ to look good. So much so, that many church people will watch the screenplay acted out with beautiful direction and fall into so romantic that she, that wife, fell in love with that guy or vice versa at the office. We live in a dangerous world because as we saw Peter say, our own sinful nature is at war with our soul. You see, marriage, that's the grid. Okay, what other words can I use? That's the foundation. I don't know. But that's what sex is meant for. So that's the grid in which we are to understand what we are to do or not to do with our natural and twisted sexual natures. And because marriage is the grid, that is why sexual sins are so inherently sinful and serious. For married people, Adultery is sinful precisely because it robs God of His glory. By our saying to Him, You are a know-nothing. And your glory, which you think is above how I'll act out sexually, outside of my marriage, I don't take you seriously. Whether the person consciously is doing it or not, Judgment Day will reveal it. See, marriage is intended to be a display of the fidelity, that means the faithfulness, of the husband, Christ. That's what it points to. And therefore, adultery says... Jesus, I want to put on a play for the world. Jesus is not faithful. That's what adultery proclaims. And that's why the New Testament presents Christ in the church as the groom and the bride. Adultery is so abhorrent because it tells a lie about who God is and about who the Savior is. And it will not be overlooked. For those who aren't married, premarital sex, sex outside of marriage, for, for those who are single, It is sin precisely because it's God's creatures demanding to participate in a part of what marriage represents without the solemn covenant that represents Christ's commitment to the church. And all sexual sins that are listed in the Bible, like bestiality, and incest, Homosexual activity, fornication, adultery, they are revealed as in and of themselves sinful. Because each of them is a desire for something less than God's completion of that act in the covenant of marriage. Our entire culture is going haywire on human sexuality and on humanness. On male and femaleness. So hold on. Because I'm telling you, there are are millions of people sitting in church today. They will be gone ten years from now. They will not be able to hold to anything close to this sermon anymore. They won't. They're not holding on. They're not desperately looking day in and day out in the context of their local churches to see the beauty of the glory of God. See, we Christians simply cannot talk about the issue of sex without talking about marriage. Biblical marriage. We are united in Christ, if you're a Christian, by a covenant. Oh, it's a covenant shed in His blood. That's what Jesus brings to the altar for His bride, His blood. And so in talking about the issue of sex, you have to be talking about Jesus and the church to get it. You have to be talking about male and female. About sexual intimacy and faithfulness or fidelity in the marriage. And the reality that God has set out an order for His glory. Because the Bible clearly puts marriage as a centerpiece of human existence. On purpose, as a pointer to Christ and His bride, the church. See, this is why I prayed this morning that we would feel it. Because if God is gracious to you right now and you feel it, this is why Paul writes now in Ephesians 5, 5-6. to for you may be sure of this, you professing church members, that everyone who is living in sexual immorality or impurity, and covetousness, more and more and more, sexual activity, that person is an idolater. He or she does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, that's why the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, because of marriage, because of Christ in the church. I turn to one more text. 1 Corinthians 6. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Oh, Corinthian Christian, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's the same word, pornay. okay, here it's pornoi, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. All right. The gospel is really good. Look at the very next thing Paul says. Verse 11. After he just mentioned the sexually immoral adulterers, homosexual practice, and such were some of you. Hear the gospel of the husband. As Paul says, he washes with the Word. He cleanses the bride. Such were some of you. But, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And therefore, as you sit today, There is no sexual sin that is beyond the cleansing of the blood of Christ. There is no sexual activity in the past from this moment on that is too big, too dark, too embarrassing, too disgusting for the blood of Jesus to absorb. Here's the Gospel. Here's here's the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a future judgment day coming when that man who has been raised from the dead returns. And on that judgment day, there will be judgment on fornicators and adulterers And those who practice homosexual activity. But not on all of them. There's an escape from that judgment for many. At that judgment day, there will be two groups of people. First, it's that group. It's Christ's bride. They are those whose sins, all kinds of sins, including sexual sins, their sins have already been punished. Justly through God's judicial system. In the death of Christ. They are cleansed. The other group, Their sins will be the evidence of their deserved condemnation and judgment. So I just want to say, if you you love the Lord Jesus, if He's your treasure, I, I mean you sinner, I mean you who know what it is to constantly be a sexual being and your sexuality is always broken to one extent or the other that you deal with internally. And to whatever sexual thinning with other persons you have ever done prior to walking in here this morning. If Jesus is your Savior, then the miracle of faith has united you to Jesus and you are to, you are to live in these words. You were washed. You were set apart. Sanctified. You were justified. You are righteous before Him and your sins are wiped away. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so I say to you, fight against, if you're wrestling with a guilty conscience of past, sexual, or any other kind of sins, fight against that, knowing I belong to Him. I'm justified. Now, as you do that, here's the exhortation. If you're a heterosexual person and unmarried, you are not to fulfill those natural, inborn desires that are constant. Okay, let me just, it just doesn't work this way. You walk an aisle and you get married, and then the preacher turns a key. And he turns on your human sexuality now. Doesn't work that way. You're no more of a sexual being after you get married than before. But as you walk, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you are not to fulfill those natural, normal Sexual desires with any human being outside of the covenant of marriage. And for those, for such, for some of you, practicing homosexuality, for same sex attracted persons, you are not to fulfill those desires ever. Sex is to be experienced only in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And so, as I'm closing then, has the grace of God caused you to turn away from fornication, from adultery, from homosexual experience, from promiscuous petting from an unlawful divorce. Then the command of the Lord is, as those who belong to Christ, honor marriage. One way, first is this, honor marriage of our bridegroom. his Receive His gift of forgiveness and cleansing and a clean conscience as those who are justified by His blood, not by anything that we have done. Don't let that guilty conscience plague you and then go on in how you're living out your life heeding what Paul tells us this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality... And all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among Christians. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are good. We are in desperate need, young, middle-aged, older, to constantly see Your glory. To have You constantly shine the light of Your glory upon the Word of God in our hearts. Oh, that we would be lights in a dark world, that we would be manifest to those out there, that we see something. And thus, through our walk, others, as Peter says, may glorify Him on the day because they will have come to faith through Word and life, through action and Gospel. Make us those people To the glory of Your holy name and to the sanctity of marriage and to the placarding of the beauty of what it is to be a part of the bride of Christ. Amen.